Well, indeed, welcome to uh, the first in a new series. Uh, this one is titled Spring Into Action. You've um, been seeing the, the banner around the place. And uh, the heart of this series, well, it's that time of year, isn't it? It's spring. You know, we're seeing green leaves on trees again that are deciduous, and we're, we're seeing um, things budding and flowers blossoming. Great time of year, spring. And uh, I'm trusting there's going to be a new invigoration too in our faith in Jesus Christ around this time of year. The heart of Spring Into Action is based on Philemon 1.6, which says, be active in sharing your faith. Uh, so that the heart of this is that the time is going to come where as, uh, as God's people, I'm hoping that as we look through some passages in the New Testament, we see a whole variety of approaches to sharing the gospel. One of them is going to sit well with you, and you're going to think, actually, I can do that. I can do that one. Um, we're going to look at um, Paul. How Paul, one of his evangelistic approaches was simply sharing his story, how he'd come to believe. We're going to look at Jesus, how he sits one-on-one with an individual, has a conversation with them, but by the end of that conversation, that lady has come to believe that he really is the Messiah and places her faith in him. We're going to look at uh, people like Peter as how he stands up and preaches up a storm and um, has that classic evangelical approach to sharing the gospel very much as uh, Billy Graham would, and that's where Billy Graham would have got his inspiration from. Or we're going to look at people like Matthew, where Matthew, uh, he comes to believe in Jesus and then throws a party and just invites his believing friends and his non-believing friends, mixes them together, and let's see what happens. As you're getting the idea, there's a whole variety of approaches to sharing the gospel. In this series, we're going to look at a bunch of them. Um, Now, the hope is that uh, the time is going to come that by the end of the series, we are going to be active in sharing our faith, planting the seed of God's word in people's hearts and seeing it grow. Um, That's the imagery there of the little plant. And that's exactly what happened to me. I had a guy called Mark Williams in my workplace. He kept planting the seed of God's word in my heart. We had many spiritual conversations over several months and eventually uh, the seed of God's word took root got established, and I came to faith in Jesus. One of the things that can help us in this journey too, and these are readily available today, is this book here, Spring Into Action. And so this eight-part study guide uh, directly relates to the messages. Uh, and so my hope is that people can, they're, they're readily available there at the information table. Feel free to grab one today. So use these as part of your personal quiet times to reflect on the very passages that I'll be preaching on and or also, as Roxanne's mentioned, sign up for a small group. That list is there. Just pop your name down. And um, the idea is I think there's a synergy that can take place. When you listen to the preached word of God, you further meditate on its passages through the help of this booklet. You then further discuss it in a small group environment And finally, then you choose to live it out, to apply the Word of God. When you've got those four things happening, discipleship takes place in your life, whether you like it or not. It'll happen. (laughs) Let me me share a story with you. When I was at Bible college, um, my my degree is uh, a major in missiology. And part of that degree, uh, we had to do a couple of cross-cultural missions, Uh, So one of the places I went to with Pamela, we were newly married at the time, we went off to Mexico and spent some weeks in Mexico. I did a lot of preaching with translation, but it was a fascinating cultural experience, but it was also very interesting to see what was going on 
in their churches. Um, one of the churches I visited was, uh, to get the denomination right, it's Amistad Christiana. Uh, so a charismatic uh, church movement. Uh, there's a bit of a shot of Mexico City too, as you can see there. A big city, Mexico City. 20 million people when I was there. It's a very big city, mega city. Uh, well, one of the churches I visited in Mexico City was Amistad Christiana. And um, it was interesting to hear their story. So this particular church, uh, one of their church churches, um, was about 10,000 strong. And um, I got a history of the church. And it had sprung out of a Bible study group about 18 years previously, where a bunch of people had got together. They thought they wanted to study the Word of God for themselves. They were a part of a movement that didn't encourage that. It was more like the priest will tell you what to believe rather than personally going to the Bible yourself. Well, they decided they want to go to the Bible for themselves. And in the journey of reading the Scriptures, as we read in John 3.3, they all became born again. They entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. It was life-changing. They decided they would plant a church. Now, what was happening actually all over Mexico at this time, this was just going on all over the place. Some of those churches became Amistad Christiana churches. Uh, this particular one, like I said, was about 10,000 strong and it sprung out of just that Bible study group, but there were, it had five sister churches that had started around the same time and also each were about 10,000 strong. Now, it was a church planting movement. Uh, that particular church had planted a church about 18 months previously. It was already 500 strong. And uh, this was typical of a number of the evangelical movements there, a really outstanding uh, growth. Um, well, for instance, that particular service I went to, um, a very, very stock standard service, not, not dissimilar to what we did today. They started with about four songs, worship band, then they had announcements, then there was the preach, and, and then there was an altar call because at the end of the sermon, the pastor gave a call for salvation. About 70 or so people went forward. And um, many of them, I know it was their first time in church, and I know this wouldn't go well with our Aussie culture, I'm sure, but one of the things they did as part of the announcements was say, anyone here for the first time? And if there was, which there always seemed to be, um, the people around them would sing them a little song of welcoming them to the church, and someone would come up to them and whack a big love heart on them that said, in Spanish, hi, my first time in church. <laughs> now, I know many of them it was their first time because they had those badges on. I had one on too. I didn't go forward. But, <laughs> um, but I asked the lady who was bilingual nearby, I said, so how often does that happen? You know, people coming forward to receive Jesus for salvation. And she said, oh, that happens every service. And uh, I, like I said, there was about 70, probably about 20 of those, also might have been counsellors or something, but about 50 of them would have been first-time decisions for Jesus. When she said every service, it was two services on a Sunday and a Wednesday night service, so three a week. Think of that, 50 people saved each service, three services a week, 150 a week, 52 weeks a year. No wonder they were growing. Um, now, I asked myself the question, well, what's the difference? with the Mexican churches and the Australian churches. Now, the Mexicans are, are quite festive, warm, friendly people. Um, and so I thought, well, is it, is it that fellowship, you know, really loving sort of relationships and that sort of stuff? But as I got around the churches a bit, um, one of the churches I went to is a large Presbyterian church. And uh, as I'm chatting with the members there, they said, um, 
oh, there's a horrible feud going on in the church at the moment. Two of the really large families in the church just hate each other and it's causing such awful division. And I started to realise, no, they're like Aussies. They don't get on that well at times. <laughs> I thought, well, is it, is it the Word of God? You know, they love the Word of God. They study the Word of God. And as I um, talked around a bit more, I thought, no, nah, there's a lot of them who don't read the Bible very much. <laughs> Um, and then I thought, well, is it prayer? The powerhouse of the Lord, you know, is it prayer? And I will say there probably might have been a notch up on the Aussie churches in prayer, but a lot of their churches too struggle to get people to prayer meetings and that sort of stuff. And I thought, so what is it? And then I looked at the area of evangelism. And the average Mexican Christian just very naturally talks about Jesus in their workplace, amongst their relatives, amongst those they play sport with, with their neighbours, and just it's just part of who they are as a Christian. They talk about Jesus. Invite their friends to church. Many of those people who went forward, a friend had simply invited them along to church. And I thought, well, perhaps in Australia, if our average Christian was motivated in talking about Jesus, like my friend Mark Williams was in my workplace, perhaps that would turn everything around. Because like I said, I don't know their spirituality was any different to ours, except that area, they were poles apart. Today, I've, um, I've titled this message, Opening the Fist of Resistance. Opening the Fist of Resistance. Why have I titled it? That, well, you see, I think many, many Australian Christians, we treasure the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold it close to our hearts. And we do freely share it with one another. But when it comes to those who don't know Jesus, we struggle. And we keep that gospel held close to our hearts. But what I want us to do is open it up and release it into the community. And I'm going to share five things with you today that I think can help us do that. Matthew 9.35, it says this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The phrase I want to focus on there is that Jesus saw the crowds. Now, I want to suggest that he looked beyond the surface. What did he see? He said, well, it says there that he thought the people looked harassed and helpless, that they needed a shepherd. And yet, what would he have seen? Fishermen making a good profit out of fishing. Farmers breeding and building up their, their flocks. Sheep or cattle selling them. People with their, their growing their, their crops. Farmers with their big harvests. Those um, with their grapevines selling their wine. Businessmen in the heart of town. Lots of people doing well in life, but when he looked at them, he saw beyond the surface. He saw that they were harassed and helpless. 
I think truly seeing the crowds is key. My, my first point is this. To open the fist of resistance, we need to see the crowds. To open the fist of resistance, we need to see the crowds. But see people as they really are. There's a very interesting phrase where it says harassed and helpless. Uh, I remember a lecturer at Bible College explaining the culture behind this. Apparently it's, it's uh, something the, the shepherds would use about the sheep. If a wolf had got in amongst the flock and chased them around and around and around, eventually the sheep gave up. They didn't know what to do. They, and then they kind of to stand still, a little bit shaken, glassy-eyed, and just didn't know what to do. Jesus used a phrase to describe that's what, how he saw the people. It's as if the devil has come in and got people caught up in the rat race, chasing after this, that, and the other, getting ahead in life with money, you know, devoting hours on end on their farm or in their vineyard or raising their cattle or their, vis- their business in the heart of the city. And in the, in the, the, the rat race of life, their spirituality was affected. And he saw them as harassed and helpless. And you know what? I think if Jesus looked upon the people of the northern suburbs of Melbourne, I think likewise he'd see a lot of people harassed and helpless and needing a shepherd. I'm going to get you to do something to illustrate the journey of these five points. Could you hold up this fist, this fist of resistance I've been talking about? Just put it over your heart for a moment. Where we treasure the word of God, keep it deep in our heart. Open up that fist of resistance and share the gospel. One of the first steps is this. Would you say this with me? We need to see the crowds. We need to see the crowds. Let's say it together. We need to see the crowds. Let's open our fist, put that first finger out like this. We need to see the crowds. Moving through the passage... Let me read verse 36. It says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. He felt for them. And my second point is this. To open the fist of resistance, we need to, number two, feel compassion. We need to feel compassion uh, the Greek word that's been translated compassion is splonknezomai. Splonknezomai. Uh, Chuck Swindle, the preacher, says it's closely associated with the word splonknon. And splonknon meant literally my insides are knotted up. Deep emotional feeling. And so when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt for them. What did he feel? Well, the, the, the word splonkdon, it, it, it's a mixture of, on the one hand, it's deep compassion, but there's also anger there. And I think what's going on is Jesus is angry that Satan has got in there. He's like a wolf. He stirred up the sheep, got them running around about, after all sorts of things. But the other part of it is he's feeling for the people. He's concerned for them. He cares about. Let me tell you a story about some monkeys. A couple of monkeys here. Let's have a look at a couple of monkeys here. There we go. Never sure whether I can call a monkey baby monkey cute, but, um, <laughs> but there they are. An experiment was conducted um, to ascertain whether or not 
baby monkeys were attracted to mum because largely because simply she was the provider of food or was there a much deeper relationship than that? So in the journey of this experiment, stage one, they were separated from their mum and they created a couple of monkeys. One was a fluffy monkey that looked very much like mum and another was a wire mesh monkey. Both monkeys distributed milk. They had little teats that distributed milk. The baby monkeys didn't go near the wire mesh monkey. They just hung out with the fluffy monkey. Stage two of the experiment is they um, stopped the fluffy monkey releasing milk. The baby monkeys could only get milk from the wire mesh monkey. But what the baby monkeys did, they would go get their milk and then they'd go straight back to the fluffy monkey, swinging off its ears, climbing all over it. It seemed there was more to it than just the food. Um, we're told in uh, Peter that we, as newborn babes in Christ, to desire the pure milk of God's word. And we can also share the pure milk of God's word too, can't we? There's two ways we can do that. We can do it in a kind of a wire mesh sort of way, with no compassion, simply matter-of-factly sharing the gospel. Or we can do it with compassion. And I think one of the reasons the crowds flocked to Jesus was because of that heart of love, that, that compassion that he had. He certainly shared words at times that were not easy to hear, but he also had that heart of compassion. Can I suggest number two? We need to be that people who have compassion. We're going to, let's do this fist thing again. Put that fist over your heart. To open up this fist of resistance, we need to what, first of all? Let's do number one. What is it? See the crowds. Let's say that again. We need to see the crowds. And number two, we need to feel compassion. Number two, we need to feel compassion. It says in Matthew 9.37, Jesus' words, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Now, in Jesus' day... Um, he had religious leaders that did not think he was the real deal. They thought he was a false prophet. They stirred up all sorts of rumours about him. You know, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons, this Jesus. You know, so he had a lot of people that hated him, did not follow him, and tried to convince others that he was false. So in some ways, you'd say, well, there's every reason for Jesus not to think the harvest was plentiful, but that's what he said. He looked around the crowd and said, the harvest is plentiful. I want to make the suggestion this is key for you and I, because if we think no one's open to Jesus, we will have no motivation to share the gospel truth. But my experience has been, I reckon I've done a lot of evangelism in Australia, I reckon about one in four people, given the right setting, are open to the gospel. Granted, three and four are not. They're green fruit, so to speak. But one in four is the right fruit. Number three, to open the fist of resistance, we need to know the harvest is plentiful. You could say believe the harvest is plentiful. Number three, no, the harvest is plentiful. 
Now, I know many people probably think, yeah, but Lee, it's not. People aren't open in Australia. I remember um, when I was at Bible College, we did a short-term mission to a little country town in Victoria called Kahuna. Some of you have driven through it, probably. Little country town of Kahuna, dairy farming there, primarily. And just 2,000 people live there. Now, um, because it was, I guess, not a lot happens in the town, four of us Michos from the Bible College arrived there and we got a write-up in the paper and that sort of thing. And <laughs> um, Anyway... We met with the elders of the Uniting Church. The pastor had got us out. We met with the elders of that Uniting Church and uh, had a chat with them. And uh, I remember the fellow saying, all these country towns, they're not like the cities, you know. People like sport on a Sunday. You can't get them to the church. can't get them through the doors. They did not think there was any harvest going on in their little town. <laughs> So we weren't there for long, just two weekends and the week in between. So we did a few evangelistic events. Now we saw 27 decisions for Jesus, most of them first-time decisions, most of them young people, actually. Now, that's not, even the leaders of the church, not what they thought. They thought the harvest was not plentiful, but actually it was. I remember getting a letter back um, about 18 months later from one of the young adult leaders in the church. And um, she said, one of the young guys um, we'd led to Christ the first Friday night we arrived. Uh, and uh, because he was right at the beginning, I'd had the time to meet with him three times, one-on-one, to get him discipled, get him grounded. Anyway, she wrote of this young guy, he's only 16, and said... This young guy now is leading his own teenage Bible study group and uh, he is so fired up, he's changing our town, she writes. So some of the fruit was clearly lasting. But I'm convinced if we don't believe the harvest is plentiful, we will not be motivated to share. This is key. Let's put that fist over our heart again. Let's do this again. Number one, if we're going to open up this fist of resistance, what's the first thing we need to do? We need to? That's right, see the crowds. Number two, we need to? Feel compassion, amen. Number three, we need to know the harvest is plentiful. Can we say that together? We need to know the harvest is plentiful. One more time, we need to? Amen. 9.37 of the passage goes on to say, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The workers are few. I believe a further key is actually caring about that. That we would be concerned that the workers are few. Number four, to open the fist of resistance, care that the workers are few. Care that the workers are few. Now, why are they few? Is it, say, for instance, in this nation of Australia, the workers are few because there's just not many Christians here? Um, Well, let me give some stats. Uh, So, just looking at the census from uh, 2021, population of Australia at that time is about 25.5 million. Um, So, this is 2021 census. Uh, In the census, it's revealed that 44% of Australians still tick the box, I'm a Christian. Anglican, Baptist, Catholic, whatever, you know. So 44% still say, I'm a Christian. 
Now, I know you'll say, yeah, but, but Lee, a lot of them, you know, might show up to church at Christmas and Easter, but they're not followers of Jesus. Yeah, well, you're right. I know, I know. I realise that. So a better statistic might be, what is the evangelical population? Evangelicals are those who uh, believe in a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, believe that the Bible is the final authority for how we live and, and uh, what we believe and so on. So the evangelicals are in pretty much every movement. There are some evangelicals within them, some. It's mostly evangelicals, some movements. What percentage do they make up? Well, according to Jason Mandrake in his book Operation World, he puts them at 14% of Australia's population, 14%. If that's true, granted, that copyright's 2010, so it's a little bit out of date, might be a bit lower than that now, I don't know. But if that 14% is about right, that's 3.5 million people, 3.5 million evangelicals. You can't tell me 3.5 million people can't change a nation, especially not like a nation that doesn't have a huge population. See, it's actually not a lack of Christians, is it? It's a lack of workers. Because many evangelicals, even though they might be committed to Christ, you know, they, they read their Bibles, they pray, they're active in ministry in their church, but they're not involved in the harvest. They don't share the gospel. It's not that they don't want to, but it just doesn't really seem to happen. They haven't become workers. But is it Jesus' expectation that we become a worker anyway? Well, let's have a look at some scriptures. Well, our new series itself, I did have a lady say to me one day, uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that we should share the gospel. I said, well, that's not really true. Let me give you a list of verses. <laughs> Philemon 1.6 that we're basing this series on says this, I pray that you be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Paul clearly wanted his believers to be active in sharing their faith. And he even said that you'll have a better understanding of all your blessings in Jesus if you do share your faith. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, even if I was utterly selfish, I would be a soul winner because of the great joy it places in my heart when I share the gospel or lead someone to Christ. Romans ten seventeen says this, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. People come to believe because they hear the gospel message. Therefore, someone's got to share it. And I will say, as much as it's good to be kind, loving, generous to unchurched people, all of that's so good. It sets a platform for the gospel, but that will not lead them to faith in Jesus. They still have to hear the gospel message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word about Christ. 2 Timothy 4.2 says this, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. So, Paul writes that to Pastor Timothy, and when you read there, preach the word, you could say, oh, yeah, but isn't that just him talking about Timothy, preach the word to his congregation? No, it's not that. It's not a great translation, that. Uh, one of my friends um, uh, was doing his PhD in evangelism. He used to go to Crossway, and he said, uh, one of the unfortunate things with some of our translations is often where you read preach the word, it's actually share the gospel, preach the gospel. And it's not, so that's actually a little bit misleading, so he's actually saying to Timothy, preach the gospel. 
And do it in season and out of season. In other words, when people are open or when they're not open, just do it. Keep on sharing the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts set about Christ, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So firstly, he says they set apart Christ as Lord, Peter writes. And it seems that if you have really set apart Christ as Lord, it should be natural for you to always have an answer when someone is searching for faith. Um, it's, it's interesting here, this word answer, um, always be prepared to give an answer. Um, it's uh, the Greek word apologia. And uh, it's nothing to do with apologising to people. Apologia has to do with having... Um, reasons why you believe we get our word apologetics from it the concept is that we would have uh, information that we can share with someone that is that helps them realize why we believe what we do people often have stumbling blocks as to why they don't believe the gospel message it's a case of removing some of that false information have reasons to present as to why we believe what we believe 1 Corinthians 9.16 says this, Yet when I preach the gospel, writes Paul, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul's even in fear of judgment if he didn't preach the gospel, that the Lord would judge him for it. But he also adds at the beginning of that phrase, I'm compelled, I have this deep motivation within to share the gospel of Jesus. And one more, Jude 1.23 says this, Snatch others from the fire and save them. Snatch others from the fire and save them. I used to be in a Christian rock band called Body Snatchers, and that was based on that scripture. <laughs> um, you know, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, which, had a, which was a massively evangelistic movement in its days, not so much these days, but it was at that time with him as the general, as the leader, so evangelistic, especially throughout Great Britain. They saw huge numbers of people come to faith in Christ. William Booth said this, I want every member of my congregations to be held over the fires of hell so that they might realise what awaits their family, their friends, their associates, their work colleagues. In other words, he was saying, emphasising this verse, that people might realise the fires that await them if they do not believe. Our job is to snatch them from the fire and save them. Well, friend, let's, let's hold up that fist again. The fist of resistance. How can we open it up that we might be a people that release the gospel message? Number one, we need to what? See the crowds. Number one, see the crowds. Number two, we need to feel compassion. That's right. Number two, feel compassion. And number three, we need to know the harvest is plentiful. Can we say that together? We need to know the harvest is plentiful. Amen. And number four, what we've just been looking at, we need to care that the workers are few. Can we say that together? We need to care that the workers are few. Can we say it again? We need to care that the workers are few. Matthew 9.38 says this, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Can I suggest this? Our final point today. To open the fist of resistance, number five, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, number five.
you know, as you pray, you start to feel the heartbeat of God. You're starting to pray to the Lord of the harvest about those who are lost. You start to feel the heartbeat of God. Revivalist uh, from Argentina, Ed Silvoso. He got around a lot of churches all over the world trying to get them together to pray for revival. And he used to do this. He used to say, can you hear the heartbeat of God? It goes like this. None to die. None to perish. All to be saved. 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 Prayer is certainly going to be key. Both in the journey of changing our heart attitude to the desperate need that people have to hear the gospel, but also it's prayer that is essential for coupling with the sharing of the gospel. Remember what it says in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. We have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. People can't come to faith in Christ unless the Holy Spirit is drawing them. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. As we pray that that blindness that many people have towards the gospel can be lifted. One more time. Let's hold up that, that fist, that fist of resistance. Let's hold it up. How can we open it up to release the gospel? Number one, we need to what? See the crowds. Amen. Truly see them. Number two, we need to? Absolutely. We need to feel compassion. Number three, we need to know that the harvest is plentiful. Can we say that together? We need to know that the harvest is plentiful. Number four, we need to? Care that the workers are few. Can we say that together? We need to care that the workers are few. And number five, we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Just look down at your hand for a moment now. So it's no longer that fist holding in the gospel. It's become an outstretched palm there to release the gospel message to the community. Well, friends, um, just a reminder, if you'd like to join a Bible study group, you can sign up there, pop your name down. But right now, as the worship team returns, let me close in prayer. Let's pray together.